0: I-94 is presented by Pilsen Community Books. More information is at pilsencommunitybooks.org.
1: I-94 on Lumpen Radio.
2: everyone. Welcome to another edition of I-94. Tonight, we are coming to you live from the Dial Bookshop in the Fine Arts Building downtown. My name, as always, is Mr. Jamie Trecker. I am joined by Mr. Jeremy Kitchen. Good evening. And Mr. Michael Sack. Hello, everybody. And tonight, we are joined by the author. He's sitting somewhat uncomfortably in between us because he expects a barrage of questions. I'm holding the book in my hand. If you are listening on radio, you cannot see it because it's not television. It is called An American Summer. We are joined, very happy to have him here, Mr. Alex Kotlowitz. Thank you so much for joining us. <laughs> Give him a big hand. So this book has just come out. Uh, we have read it. Uh, it has been well-reviewed, actually. I think it got a star review in Kirkus and all kinds of nice stuff. And of course, if you guys don't know who Mr. Kotlowitz is, he is an award-winning author. He's won awards across all kinds of media. In fact, I believe TV, radio, film, probably collecting, something like that as well. Uh, and you started out, of course, as a journalist. You were at The Wall Street Journal, uh, like Myself, actually, you started out with a free newspaper in Michigan, I believe, as well. That's
3: right. Yeah, a small alternative newspaper. It was called the Lansing Star. Though right before I got there, it was published by some former students from Michigan State, and it was called uh-huh. the Joint Issue, and they wanted uh-huh. to go legit, so. So they, they uh, got
2: the drop the weed references. So that. Yeah, yeah, that's, <laughs> they, good. yeah. that's good. That's <laughs> good. So uh, you may know Mr. Kalowitz because he wrote a book. Uh, Whoa, it's got to be coming 25 years ago. 28 years ago. 28 years ago, called There Are No Children Here. Now, that is a, uh, I'm not exaggerating when I say that's a canonical book, both in um, social reportage and in the history of Chicago, because it was uh, focused on a family and a group of children who grew up in the projects here. I wanted to ask you, Alex, just to start off with, did you look at this volume as kind of a thematic follow up to There Are No Children Here? And, Uh, you know, just to add on to that, Why did you revisit, in a sense, a story that you may have told before?
3: Right. So, yeah, I guess I sort of see this as a, I don't know, but as a kind of bookend to There Are No Children Here. You know, There Are No Children Here was, you know, as you said, 28 years ago, and it was, you know, about these two boys and the projects. And, I mean, as you alluded to, much of the story of their life, of course, revolved around all the violence in that community. And I will tell you the thing for me that's one of the things that's been really distressing is the stubborn persistence of the violence in this city, and I felt that while the book that book addressed it, it didn't really get to what I wanted to get at. It in this book, which is sort of how the violence really gets in your bones, you know how it comes to to shape who you are and how you work so forcefully to keep it from defining you.
2: That's it. And I wanted before we go into that because I think there are some specific moments in the book where you really delve into that topic with a number of people who do surprising things. I'm thinking uh, in one case of a mother who gives some unusual testimony after her, uh, her son's involved in a shooting. Um, what is it about this city, do you think, that has such a problem with violence in pockets of this city? Mm. It's not a widespread problem. It's in certain areas of this city. Why does that persist in this area? All right.
3: Well, lemme, a couple of things. I mean, one is as bad as it is in Chicago, and we, for whatever reason, has become kind of the poster child for urban violence. I mean, we're not even in the top 10 Worst cities in this country. I could have written this book in Baltimore, Philadelphia, New the Orleans, Milwaukee. Detroit. Yeah, absolutely. You name mm-hmm. it. So, but but the thing about Chicago is because of our size, the numbers are considerably larger than anywhere else. And for whatever for reasons I don't fully understand, we've been the epicenter of these really horrible murders around children, yeah. um, or involving children. So. Um, but you're right that the, the violence is really contained to a, a reasonably small part of the city. And and I think the kind of commonality in all these neighborhoods is these are neighborhoods that are deeply distressed and deeply neglected and deeply isolated from the rest of the city. And that's not unlike other cities as well. I mean, it just speaks to the great inequity and the segregation that still persists in this country.
2: Uh, um, we, do, we do we have one last from Tom. Uh, we do have a lot of segregation in this city, but I kind of want to expand on that for a second because there are other areas of this city that are 30% white, 30% Latino, and 30% black in the classic kind of Chicago political sense. Not a lot though. <laughs> Not a lot, but that we don't have, in, in areas that still are very segregated, we don't have that violence in them. Is there something specific about an Englewood or an Austin that makes it so much more prone to that violence than a neighborhood that might be right next to it that doesn't have that.
3: Well, except that I think you find that most of the the, the violence happens in all these neighborhoods that are just really struggling, where the sort of, I mean, I guess I, uh, the, um, the uh, the story I always think about, a number of years ago, there was a guy, Paul Collier, who wrote uh, The Bottom Billion, which is this actually, he used to work at the World Bank, but it's this book about the developing world and about how there's this cycle of violence in, in developing countries where there's this great inequity, where in places like Chad, for example, where everybody's poor, there's not a lot of violence, but it's where there's a real divide between the rich and the poor, and he comes to Chicago, and I met him during his visit, and he spent some time down the south side, and he said, This is just what I'm writing about. He says, you walk out of your door in Englewood and you look at the gleaming downtown skyline, I think one of the most beautiful downtowns in the world, and you know what's not yours. And so you can't help but feel resentful. You can't help but feel that there's not much ahead of you. Um, And so, yeah, these are communities. I think the commonalities of these are communities that are just, as I said, just deeply distressed.
4: I wanted to say a couple of things. Mike knows this, I, I live in Bright Park, my next door neighbor was murdered on Saturday. He um, a 21 year old kid and he was gunned down over in Cage Park. Yeah. And um, you know, it's I, when you read about it all the time, read about it all the time and it doesn't affect you, but like I know this kid, I've lived in, you know, I own a house, I've lived there for since, I've known him since he was 12 years old and it was, uh, it was a real eye opener. Um, the other thing I wanted to say is, um it's it's mind-blowing to be sitting next to you because uh like a living someone who's in the canon it's to me i I just want to say i'm very honored that you're here um the only other time you know um we had gary indiana on the show are you familiar with gary and uh i i emailed him and uh he's like let's not do this email stuff just give me a call so i'm like on the phone with gary indiana who's like one of my favorite writers of all time and so (laughs) And he's absolutely a charming man. And um, I just want to say, you know, I, 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 I read There Are No Children. I was a social worker when I moved to Chicago. And uh, I read that and uh, we passed it around, you know, until it fell apart and then we bought another one. And, and um, I just want to say that i think your work's extraordinarily important and it's it's really cool to be sitting next to you
3: well man thanks. we should just stop right now yeah we <laughs> could show's <laughs> over guys that's it go Ooh, by the book
4: no, um, <laughs> no it's just i Well, oh, thanks I, uh, yeah, you thanks. know writers to me are are, are my rock stars Brilliant. so you know and that's um and that's just how i feel yeah, yeah. so
3: well they're my rock stars too i mean it's what keeps me keeps me going so yeah, yeah.
1: in the uh there's a prelude to the book so for those of you who haven't read it, the book's set up in 20 chapters with a with a prelude, and in the prelude, you uh, you you reintroduce Pharaoh, right. who's, who's the younger brother, and there are no children here, and you catch us up on what happened after the book and and where he's at today, or in 2013 when you started writing the book, and um, near the end of that prelude, you 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 tell us what the book is not. Right. You you say it's not going to be an investigation of of root causes or what solutions should be implemented or don't work. Um, And one of the things that was interesting about the book but also frustrating was like each chapter or some chapters are continuations of each other, each story is is like a dot and there's a natural inclination to try and connect them, you know, like why is all this stuff happening there's got to be a root cause and and really like one story after another you just knock down assumptions and um was that was that something you you intended did you try to look into to the root cause of all this stuff
3: so um i gotta say you're right i mean i'm really up front in the beginning of the book is not a book about public policy or prescriptions and it's in part because um, it's not my bailiwick, it's not my forte, uh, and um, and the other thing is truly we don't know what works and what doesn't work. Well, and yeah, and I mean, you say in the
1: book yeah. the, the 2016 uh, crime lab report from the University of Chicago.
3: They threw their hands up. They didn't know, yeah. you know, and I really admire those guys, and they, you know, and I also admire the fact that they were open about this, but, you know, in 2016 the numbers just exploded and they issued a report saying, we, we don't know what happened, you know. But, um, but you know, for me, I just, I guess I, um, I mean, I'm a storyteller. It's what I love to do. Um, it's probably the only thing I'm still good at, maybe basketball, but that's, you know. I, I'll let Challenge. <laughs> but, uh, but I just wanna say, that, you know, we tell stories, though, not to, we tell stories to ask questions, not to answer them. And so that's why I tell stories. It was the same with There Are No Children Here. There was no attempt in that book to, offer any prescriptions or to deal with public policy Um, and you know my ambitions are are somewhat modest as you know I guess I hope that you know uh, that you tell stories and it upends what people think they knew and challenges uh, their assumptions and just gets them to think about the world and themselves just a little bit differently you know if it does more than that I feel pretty damn fortunate.
1: Were there, were there a lot of stories you had to leave out? I mean, you did a ton of... Yeah, internet.
3: yeah, yeah. There were some stories I had to leave out. There was one story in particular I really, really, really wanted to write for the book, and I couldn't get the main subject of that story to cooperate. And, and, I, and Can you I, talk about it at all? Or? Um, can I talk about it? Yeah. Um,
2: Maybe in broad strokes.
3: Yeah, in broad strokes I can. So it's a story about... I, yeah, I we'll won't get into the details, but it was a story about a security guard and a off-duty police officer who got into a tussle with uh... somebody who had been drinking and um, and the upshot is that the the, um, the person who had been drinking got very aggressive and they ended up killing him um, and i wanted to tell the story um, of the security guard who it turns out was a, a, a black lives matter activist and she did this on her part-time but i i understand i mean I'm, it had to be really hard for her um, um, so that was a story I really wanted to tell, but couldn't get her to sit down with me.
4: What resonated uh, a lot for me was the, um, it was a very uh, insightful look at trauma, uh, I think. And, um, and as, you know, there are, there was no solutions. I mean, it's not a book, like, how do we figure out the violence? Nobody knows how to, you know, how to figure out the violence in Chicago. Did want to mention uh, my friend Kristen over here works for a, a group where they, uh, they work with, it's called Chicago reach, correct?
3: Chicago ready. Yeah. Chicago ready.
4: Right. And they work with, uh, people that are, um, you know, very likely to become offenders and they do jobs programs and then, uh, therapy. And, um, I actually saw the Dean of Harvard medical school speak about, uh, trauma as a public health, you know, and, and a lot of politicians talk about it. Uh, the good ones anyway. And, um, You know, I I think that's one of the things, you know, um, I'm a veteran, you know, and I saw things that nobody should see. And now, you know, you got these kids that get shot, they stick a Band-Aid on them, send them home, you know, and and this, I I think these are things that uh, for me, that was the
3: main, um, thesis of the book I was like people are traumatized and they need help well actually interesting enough the the guy who founded Chicago Ready is actually in the book Eddie Bocanegra um, whose story for me is just a remarkable one I mean he's an extraordinary individual but you know he uh, at the age of 18 was running with a Latin gang and a friend of his was shot and paralyzed and so Eddie in an act of vengeance uh, shoots and kills a rival gang member and ends up serving 14 years in prison and his story is very much a story about forgiveness about asking about trying to find a way to forgive himself for what he's done but when Eddie's in prison his brothers who both served in Iraq and Afghanistan come home and one of them is is deeply traumatized by his experience and is telling Eddie about it and Eddie's thinking to himself that's me that's what I've been through and so Eddie started this remarkable program Chicago Ready where they're you know br- not only providing jobs for young people but also Putting them in, giving them cognitive behavioral therapy, trying to get them to be more self aware about the trauma they've experienced.
2: I wanted to expand a little bit on that because there's a a passage, a story in the book about a a student at a school who repeatedly keeps undergoing trauma after trauma. People are getting shot, people are getting killed. Um, There's domestic violence. He, it it seems to some of the people who are supposed to be the support people at the school that he is simply unfeeling, and that's completely untrue. And you, you reference this sense that people are numb to the violence a number of times, and that's, that's not true. Right. Is this Thomas? Yeah, and one of, the, one of the most, for me, compelling things that I had not really considered was you tell the story of one of the social workers who was working with him who started having the symptoms of post-traumatic stress right. from dealing with some of these kids who right. were going home after seeing their friends shot. And I I think that's kind of an unexamined, um, until reading this book, that was kind of an unexamined part of the toll that the violence in the city is taking is on the social workers and on the educators who frequently are the only people that, that interact with these children.
3: Right, no, they call it secondary or vicarious trauma, this sort of where you're not, where you're impacted by the trauma because of the stories that you hear, and so, yeah, I mean, the story about Thomas you mentioned, you know, he was really, really kind of surly in high school, easy to add anger. And so there were people in the school who thought, well, this is just a, you know, uncooperative kid. But Anita, who had experienced her own trauma in her life, she saw some of herself in Thomas, and it's a story about this beautiful relationship between the two of them that continues well beyond their time, well, in, his there, time in high school. There's
1: a, there's a chapter with its own story about uh, a reporter right. who, who's affected in that way. Right, Pete Nikias, right. Nickius, right, he, right uh, yeah. I mean, he, bas- His job was basically to tweet around the clock on the city's <coughs> gun violence.
3: Yeah, and Pete's out there, you know, he's out there going from murder to murder, and, um, and he's a kind of tough guy, you know, he sort of re- reminds me a little bit of a, you could mistake him for a cop, um, but it begins to really get at him. Um, it begins to, you know, he's beginning to realize he's seen things that he can't get out of his head. That yeah, he there's a moment when he gets to a scene early, and he's there before the police and the ambulance, and he's got to administer first aid. And he realizes, I'm not I'm not beating them to the scene anymore. Um, right. uh, he starts to drink. Yeah. He's a um, he's a really uh, his work is is also remarkable. Um, his work he did for the Tribune. He's now on a Neiman at Harvard. But yeah, he's oh. a. Um, what about you? Uh, yeah, I, you know, I hesitate to talk about it in some ways because it feels um, in some ways so minimal to what the people in, that I spent time with went through. But there was a period when I was, uh, when I sat down to write the book um, that I went and I never never experienced anything just a kind of really deep depression where I couldn't feel, I didn't feel any joy, I couldn't smile. and. Um, and it took a while to come out of it, and, you know, I went into therapy, and, and there's no question, looking back on it, that it was this kind of secondary or vicarious trauma. I also had the catharsis of being able to sit down and tell these stories.
4: I want to talk about the, the section in the book where we revisit Pharaoh. Um, For those of you who haven't read There Are No Children Here, it's about two brothers, Pharaoh and Lafayette. Lafayette and their uh, experiences growing up in the Henry Horner homes, which used to be on Lake around Ashland and...
3: Between Ashland and
4: Western. Between yeah. Ashland and Western. Yeah. It's a pretty large yeah, huge. Uh, housing project, and um, I actually had used to do family visits there when I first moved here. But one of the young men, Pharaoh, ends up becoming adopted, or...
3: Well, he lived with us. He, he well,
4: he ta- a, a guy yeah. takes him under his wing. Can you, can you tell us a little bit about that story? Because sure. I thought to me, having read the book and you know the relationship was very complicated and as all relationships right. are but oh, I, it,
1: I think you're conflating too alex took him in no alex yeah took I in.
3: you're thinking of mike and you're Victor. thinking of mike yeah v- you're thinking of yeah. mike yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah.
1: <laughs> which was a very
3: interesting and relationship. i didn't know. Yes, you did take in pharaoh yeah but you're thinking of pharaoh moved
1: and in and with him. alex when he was 12 yeah. Yeah. you're yeah. thinking of a uh, crazy thinking, story yeah yeah, but, which, uh, which,
3: which I can tell, but I don't want to give away I the end. I do ending. this a lot. Um,
4: <laughs> <laughs> we read a lot of stuff that's for exciting. the show, but yeah, you never know what you're gonna get. Alex took Pharaoh in from the book, and then there's another story right. about a uh, another man who took in right. a, a young man.
3: Right. right, right. In fact, that's how I so. There's a story, and I don't want to give away the ending to that story because yeah, yeah, it has course. a. It's well, a, you want to talk
4: about you and Pharaoh a little bit? I never sure. knew that. Yeah,
3: yeah, yeah. And it's not something I really. You know, it's funny. Um, uh, it's not something I've talked about publicly before, and it's the first time. I mean, I talked to Pharaoh about it, about writing about it, and I don't write about it much in the book. I mean, the story that I tell with Pharaoh is, and I had to explain the situation is that uh, he, when he was 12 years old, right after the book came out, um, he was, you know, Pharaoh loved school, and there was a lot of traffic in his in his house. I was single at the time, living up on the north side, and he just said, "Can I come stay with you for a few days to?" Because I, I need to get I'm getting behind in school and I just need a quiet place and three days turned into three weeks into three months and I got married bless my wife she was open to the idea of Pharaoh coming <laughs> with the marriage um, and he ended up spending staying with us through high school um, but there's a moment that I write about in the book when Pharaoh is. Um, He's 18 and he's on his way to Southern Illinois University. It's the end of the summer. And my wife and myself and my daughter were going back east to visit my parents. And usually Far would come back with us, but he wanted to stay to get ready for school. And he take, takes a cab from our house in Oak Park to his mother's on the west side. They'd moved out of the projects. And as he gets to his mom's, um, Two guys apparently pull him out of the cab. One of them and one of them and get into the cab, and one of them ends up shooting and killing the cab driver. And Farrell watches this whole thing unfold in front of him. So I'm in New York, and late at night, I get a phone call, and it's a detective, Ann Chambers, who I knew from my time at Henry Horner. And she's standing in my kitchen, and uh, she tells me that Farrell's been involved in a murder. I mean, my knees buckled. I mean, I initially thought that Pharaoh had set these guys up, and I think, fortunately, Ann knew Pharaoh from the time of the projects, and they very quickly realized that wasn't the case. But I, right when I was working on the book, Pharaoh and I went out to lunch, and I was telling him about the book I was working on, and asked him about this incident that happened 20 years ago, which he's never talked about, and uh, and we're at MacArthur's on the west side. It's sitting in a booth, and Pharaoh starts talking about the incident, and it's as if he's back in that moment, and it some point he actually gets up out of the booth and starts to crouch like he's crouching by the cab. And uh, and I've got to literally pull him by the arm to get him back in the booth to sort of get him back in the moment. And it's really about how in that moment you realize how much the violence gets in your bones. Um, uh, Yeah, I apologize for the mix-up, but I I
4: did not know that. And uh, that's amazing that you did that. I I don't know a lot of people that would uh, but taking a kid out, you know.
1: Well, I mean, that leads into the, the That story leads into that the other story. Yeah, the
4: other that,
2: ones, That's also a parallel possible. story in a way. Yeah. Right. Was in that fact,
3: what was attractive to you about it as a writer, just from a process point of right. view? Right, yeah, so it's interesting. So this is a story, and again, I don't want to give away the ending to this story, um, but it's a story of a guy, um, Mike, I call him Mike Kelly in the book. It's not his last name, but um, uh, Mike, when he was in his 20s, was single and and working in real estate, making a lot of money, and just working all the time, drinking hard. and And his boss at one time tells him, "Man, you need to take some time off." And he t- tells Mike, "You know, you need to take a day off each week and go do something." And Mike ends up. He was a. Despite all his drinking, he still went to church, and he uh, through his church, he ended up working at a orphanage on the uh, in the western suburbs. Uh, and meets a kid there, Victor, um, who is 12 years old, and I don't think Mike realizes it, but they're very much alike. They uh, both have a quick temper. They're, uh, when they see an injustice, they act, and sometimes act out of proportions to the injustice, um, but in an admirable way. Um, but the uh, upshot of it is is Mike ends up taking Victor in to live with him and ends up adopting him. Uh, as a single parent. Um, and I actually met Mike um, through a mutual friend because Mike was, there's a moment when Mike's struggling with Victor and, and Mike was struggling with Victor and my friend knew about my relationship with Pharaoh, and so that's how I initially met Mike. Um, the story takes a really couple of unusual twists and I don't wanna give that okay. away in the- I don't want uh, to do any spoilers.
1: <laughs> well, I, I mean, can you say why, why the relationship was complicated?
3: Well, the relationship was complicated because Mike had a family that um, – well, this is putting it, uh, I guess, gently, but didn't, <laughs> didn't like the idea that he adopted a black kid. And so, um, with the exception of Mike's mother, um, virtually everybody else in the family kind of uh, ostracized Mike and, and Victor, and that was really, really hard on, on both of them.
4: I chuckled just because that was an understatement. Those right, people were yeah. horrible. Right, they <laughs> so, were horrible, yeah. Yeah,
3: yeah.
2: And of course, that's the root of so many kind of clothes coming back around. That's the root of some of the reasons that some of the places in Chicago are so underserved is due to an entrenched racism uh, that is unfortunately at the core of, of some of the civic decisions that have been made. Can you talk a little b- a bit about that? Because that's something that um, I think most of us realize is is Prevalent in Chicago, but I don't necessarily think it's necessarily discussed beyond admitting that the city is highly segregated, and sometimes kind of stops there.
3: Right. Yeah, I and mean, I think there's this kind of notion out there that we live these very separate lives because that's the way people want to live, um, and it completely neglects the history um, one of this country, but even more particularly the history of the city. Um, that you know, when blacks came up here from the south, they they couldn't live in much of the city, um, and as Ta-Nehisi Coates writes beautifully in that in his classic essay, you know, the case for reparations, he talks about sort of how blacks were also kept from owning homes and building equity, and so um, that it made it really difficult for blacks to move beyond their social standing. Uh, and so it's important to recognize the history. In fact, public housing. I mean, you know, the bulk of public housing built in the 1950s and early 1960s. Well, white politicians didn't want them built in their neighborhoods, and as a result, they were built, all, on, all of them, on the edge of existing black ghettos and served as a kind of bulwark, kind of a wall between black and white communities. So there's, a, there's I mean, it's important to recognize that history, um, and we're, we just as a nation are, uh, I mean, Studs used to always talk about uh, we had this historical amnesia in this country.
4: You know, it's an excellent book, too, if you ever wanna. Get a really good feeling of like why Chicago is the way it is. Is there's a book about uh, Richard J. Daly called American Pharaoh? Ferro. Pharaoh's coming up again, yeah, but yeah.
3: what a beautiful book! And if yeah, you read yeah, that
4: book, yeah. you know why we have the biggest airport. You know why Dan. You know Dan Ryan was the widest expressway in the country because they didn't Bridgeport wanted to be four lanes away from Brownsville. They did not want people coming over, and a lot of people don't. I, I, I actually run the library in Bridgeport. And a lot of people don't know this, but up until the 80s, the viaducts coming from Fuller Park in Bronzeville into Bridgeport, had, the neighborhood had put hurricane fences up so people could come through and they didn't come down until Jane Byrne was mayor. Yeah,
2: and of course the viaducts were set, artific- I live in Bridgeport now for 25 years. The viaducts were set artificially low and there's something of an irony that Bridgeport of course was the seat of so many, um, obviously of the dailies, but of so many politicians. Five Bridgeport is now one of the most diverse wards which the would have I can't say the word I'm looking for, but it really would have messed with the people's heads in 1980 <laughs> in <Bath>. Bridgeport, because <laughs> when I moved into the neighborhood, I can tell you, uh, as, a, as a Jew moving from New York, I was not necessarily
3: the most welcome resident of yeah. the neighborhood. There, there, uh, is some, there is some justice in this city. Yeah. There is some justice, yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: slim. Yeah. Guys, we're actually coming up to our break. Uh, I wanna just take a pause for a second. We're gonna have, pass around a notebook for people's questions, but would you give it up, please, for Alex Kotlowitz? We'll be right back, live from the dial.
0: If you enjoy listening to i94 and other programs like this on Lumpen Radio, please consider becoming a member today. More information is at LumpenRadio.com.
2: Welcome back, everyone. We're i94. We're live at the dial today. We are with author Alex Kotlowitz. Please give it up for him and his brand new book, An American Summer. Alex, before the break, we were talking about some specifics of the book. I'd like to kind of back up and ask a couple of macro questions. Uh, our audience members actually have a couple of those as well. Why did you decide as a writer and a, and a journalist to focus on the stories here in Chicago in the first place? And you, you come from uh, a traditional reporting background with the Wall Street Journal, and you, you've done a lot of other things as well. What made you, I guess in general, decide to focus on the kind of social stories that you've presented in a number of books as opposed to focusing on widgets or business or sports.
3: Right. So I guess, you know, when I think about my, so not all my stories take place in Chicago, but certainly a lot. And and, uh, I'm kind of an accidental Chicagoan, you know, from New York originally. and I will say, while well, I worked at the Wall Street Journal, um, I never felt like it was, com- I mean, I loved my job there. It never felt like completely like my home. I mean, there was this uh, uh, incredible gap between the reporters and the editorial pages, which are, were and still are to the right of Attila the Hun. Um, <laughs> but, uh, um, you know, I think of my, my writing sort of stemming from this kind of, just kind of this really fundamental and simple belief that life ought to be fair. And so I find myself in these corners of Chicago or corners of our country where life just, you know, you spend time there and life just clearly isn't fair. And so you end up, at least I end up kind of writing out of a, sometimes at least out of out of anger. Um, and the challenge for me is to not to let that anger seep into the pages of my writing. Um, so you're
4: saying the invisible hand of the free market isn't gonna solve the Chicago violence problem? <laughs> That's I. I'm baffled by that. I'm so baffled. But
2: you, it's interesting that you mention anger because that's a starting point for many uh, social realists. Uh, you know, going back to the jungle, obviously, there's a great deal of withering rage and, and barely contained contempt for the situation that, that he's writing about. Do you... I mean, you talked about having to go and undergo therapy for, for some of the things that you saw in this book, but coming out of this, you've now written two books about these subjects... What most makes you angry about these situations?
3: Well, I mean, the thing that makes me angry is that we're, well, it's this, it's the great American paradox, is that we're this country of such incredible, can be a country of such incredible generosity, and yet we are a country of just such incredible neglect. And um, and we kind of hold these side by side, but I think the thing that so makes me so angry is, how is it in the world's most prosperous country we have people living in such conditions? And let me just say that, you know, this is sort of for me indicative of a kind of much larger issue at work in this country, which is the growing economic divide in this nation, which is, you know, I think gonna do a lot of harm to who we are as a country and who we are as a people.
1: Do you think you can get answers or do you think you can only tell stories and, and hope that it pieces something together.
3: Yeah, I mean, you're looking for answers. I mean, the, it's why you go tell you go tell stories. You know, I look, when I'm out, for example, working on this book, I'm looking to understand how it is that people move on after the violence, how it is, you know, this kind of sim- simple notion of resilience and, and why it's so much more complicated than that. So I'm, for me, I'm out asking, those questions. And, you know, over time you get stuff answered and then you still, you know, you still have questions. I mean, that's why I wrote this book, is because I still had so many questions.
2: Do you also look at this in a way as a cautionary tale? Because as you note, income inequality is, is increasing and some of us are more fortunate than others, obviously, in this city, but it could be very well that the shoe could be on the other foot.
3: When you, you mean, how do, how do you mean by that? You mean that. that well, I mean, you, the, some of the stuff you talk about, the trauma, <coughs> the, the the long-lasting
2: neglect. I mean, this didn't happen accidentally. There's obviously other forces that involve racism, state-sponsored segregation, uh, a a history of slavery in the country. But as this country moves more and more away from a a more equal society in the sense of economic fairness, some would say that we might be heading into a place where there is such a huge divide between the haves and the have-nots that all of us may be confronting the kind of violence that we see in pockets in this of neighborhoods. Yeah,
3: I guess I hadn't really thought about it that way, and I want to be a little careful because I don't think that you know, I mean, we don't fully understand the violence, and I think that obviously much of it has to do with this kind of resentment and this this kind of narrowing window of opportunity in these communities. But I I, I don't want to I want to be careful not to suggest that it, you always have violence where there are places in distress. So, um, but it is a concern of mine. I mean, it is something I'm sort of trying to explore now. Um,
4: and that's a thing too. It's like, violence sells. There's vibrant communities in all these neighborhoods, mm-hmm. and uh, and the, we have so much media covers about the violence in Chicago. Right. We have a president that hates Chicago right. and like blames right. us for everything. Right. And um, right. I, you know, you know, and I know, and, and, and a lot of these stories. There's wonderful, amazing things happening, and. Um, you know, and people dealing with trauma yeah. in a beautiful way, the, the, the woman that wrote the letters, mm-hmm. I mean that was one of the You know, I, I was brought to tears when I was reading about. It. do you want to talk about that a little
3: bit? Sure, this is a young woman uh, I call her a shower in the book it's, uh, I, I changed her name at her request, but she grew up on the south side of Chicago and um, she grew up with her mom and her sister, her father had left the family and she was a really whip smart um, just an uh, incredible young woman and she was constantly disappointed by the men in her lives, the, the boys that she got to know, um, some of whom have got involved in the streets and so a shower goes off to college and uh, she decides she just wants to get as far away as she can from Chicago and ends up moving to Philadelphia. She actually works, ends up taking a job at NPR for a while um, uh, and at some point her Best friend from childhood gets involved, is involved in a murder, and uh, and they begin begin corresponding when he's in jail. And these beautiful, they were very kind to let me give me access to their letters. It's this beautiful correspondence that begins between the two of them. Um, that kind of reconnects her to the city, reconnects her to the men in her life, and gets her to rethink a lot of what she thought she already knew. Um, and so she's still in Philadelphia, but she's finding her way in some ways, if not literally back to Chicago, back to sort of trying to sort of understand the men in her lives. And uh, she's, she's an incredible person. I don't, I
1: don't want to ruin the end of that story, but there, there's, right. there's a, a significant theme that, that the end of that story brings to light, and that's the way that we deal with this stuff, the violence, the trauma, in writing in our own thoughts in letters to each other in that private space is different than the way we mm. talk about it in public spaces <coughs> right um, how, how do you i know you didn't want to address policy but how, how do you address that from a, from a community standpoint right. you know how how do people trust each other you know you if you if you read one thing in a letter that someone writes to you, and then they act differently when you see them face right. to face. Mm-hmm. You know, it, I felt like there were a lot of trust issues in the book. How can you ever really trust another person?
3: Right. Well, I think one of the things that I mean, this gets to is that for so many people I talked to in the book, it was the first time they'd ever spoken aloud about this. What was undoubtedly the most disturbing, unsettling um, moment in their life, and uh, and there you you sense this kind of utter loneliness. You know, which. You know, it's one thing to be really lonely. It's another thing to be lonely in a place in which there are all these people around you and yet you feel so disconnected from everybody. Um, This feeling that nobody can possibly understand your experience. Um, And what I found that for many, it was the first time they gave voice to that experience. And so I do think it's for, again, I go back to should you know eddie's program at chicago ready it's one of the things for me that's really exciting about that it's getting these young people to talk about things that they've never spoken about before
1: that uh, that makes me think of another question i had for you i worked with a guy who who lived in the uh the same neighborhood as thomas south englewood or the southern end of englewood and um he was he was talking about how he was having he was just pissed off every day at work he, like, like right. he, he was a Bear to work with, right. and uh, he started casually talking about things that happened last summer. His his car had been shut up three times, and um, you know I, I I asked him if that's basically asked him if that's what was bugging him, his car, sure. the shootings, whatever. He was like, no, that's that's normal. And I said, that's that's not normal. He said, well, that's normal where I come from, and it. A couple of weeks later, it ended up being that he he was pre-diabetic, and that's why his his moods were all over the place. But there was that assumption that he can't understand me, I can't right, understand right. him, and that had to be the elephant in the room when you were right. when you were reporting. And it was, yeah, it was. Yeah,
3: there's a story that's not in the book, but you know Taj Gibson, who used to play at the bowl for the yeah. Bulls. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. So uh, Taj, at one point, uh, I mean, I'm telling this story only because he's told it to me publicly, but you know he lost his. One of his best friends from childhood was killed in Vegas, and Taj was supposed to be with him that weekend when he got <laughs> killed, and he felt this incredible guilt and sorrow, and and he just said that he was going to practice, and he would just, you know, he'd get into fights in, with his teammates, and and he didn't know what was going on. And of oh, course, I remember when he
4: was yeah, yeah he, he was really in trouble, so, yeah, and yeah,
3: and so he actually very openly talks about going to going to therapy and sort of finally being able to reckon with the all these emotions swirling around this loss of his, his friend. And, you know, I mean, he, he got you know some assistance, but for many of the people who I spend time with, again, you know, they're going through this completely by themselves.
2: I wanted to ask you about another story in the book about Lisa Daniels, whose son is, is murdered in a robbery. And I bring it up because it's, a, it's um, not what you would think that the mother uh, of, a, of a dead boy, um, would request uh, during a sentencing hearing. Um, in a nutshell, her, her son is killed um, in an attempted robbery in a car, and it's uh, her son is not blameless, uh, and she makes that very clear. But she asks, uh, she says she will agree to a, a plea deal with the assailant if she can read a, a victim statement. And in the statement, um, one of the things that struck me was that she noticed noted excuse me that when her son's death was covered in the newspaper it was man shot in south town had drug and felony convictions and all this and that was what seemed to really stick with her to the point that it seemed to me that she went out of her way to almost radically turn the other cheek right. so toward the toward the person who had been involved in killing yeah.
3: her son. Yeah, I mean, her story is, again, this beautiful, I think, beautiful story, but you know, she, Lisa, um, a single mom on the south side, you know, her older son's an engineering gr- student at U of I, and Darren, her younger son, begins to wander, and Lisa does everything to hold him close, he gets involved in selling drugs, and then gets involved in this drug deal that goes awry and ends up getting shot and killed, and and as you say, the newspaper, this happened in, uh, I always get the neighborhoods, it's forest Park Forest, no, for, no. Daily Southtown, right? Park Forest on yeah. the south side, yeah. So, um, he's uh, the the Southtown the Southtown paper uh, there runs a story that talks all about his criminal record. He had served some time in prison and had a, a number of arrests. And Lisa knew all that; she wasn't in denial. But she, you know, there was so much more to her son than just that. And this happens a lot that when people get killed in the city, they're identified as being a gang member by their criminal record and um, and there's very little room to sort of imagine who they really are, and so the first thing she does, she does everything she can to let the world know there was more to her son than just that. Um, and in fact, she gets this, the license, um, the the um, frame of her license plate reads, uh, "He was my son. His name was Darren." Um, and then, as you say, she you know she exp- thinks that the the shooting was pretty straightforward. They you know it was. The, this drug dealer shot and killed her son and she thinks he's gonna you know, get convicted and sent away for a long time and the state's attorney comes to her and says, you know, it's more complicated, the witness had a criminal record and so we're gonna offer him a plea deal, is that okay with you? And she says it is, but then says, I'll do it only if I can give a victim impact statement. And usually when people give a victim impact statement, they get up in court and talk about how this is so deeply impacted them and their loved ones, um, and Lisa does that. She gets up in court and talks about that, but then she, there's this remarkable pivot where she then turns and asks for leniency for the person who killed her son. Um, she says, you know, just like my son, I don't want him to be defined by this single moment, and then ends up actually having a correspondence with him while he's in in prison. Um, there's this moment when I was talking to Michael Reed as the uh, defendant's name, he's in prison, and. He said to me, I, I just I, I just want Lisa to know that I'm not a cold-blooded killer. And Lisa says, anybody who thinks that of you, I'll go toe-to-toe with them any day. Um, and uh, she's just this extraordinary woman. She's now sitting on the, she just, this last year, got an appointment to the state parole board. And so, which is kind of cool because it's this board that really is a ultimately grappling with forgiveness and they got somebody like Lisa Daniels uh, in their ear, um, talking to them, asking questions I don't think others would be asking.
4: Well, that's the, you know, we have the gang database and, you know, when you read about anyone, any of these, a lot of these <coughs> kids getting killed in the papers, like he was a, uh, a known gang member based on whatever the criteria is that no one's really sure of. And it's, it. And that what it does to me or what i think it does is it dehumanizes people so it's like oh it's a gang well oh well but that's somebody's kid you know my my neighbor was i don't know if he was affiliated but he definitely hung out you know and he was he had his ups and downs and i mean but like i said I, you know i've known this kid since he was 12 he was a decent kid right. but he just kind of ran with the wrong wrong crew and um you know this dehumanization, it just it, I don't I, I don't know why they do it but maybe it's so like people can accept the violence right. and stay in the city I, I don't know and it's right. all these things the violence the the, right. the trauma it's it's so complicated in so many ways you know it's like when you when I was finished with the book I was like wow like I, I, I there's no answer you know and Mike said <laughs> earlier the yeah. University of Chicago crime Lab was like we don't know
3: right but people are looking into it. I mean, like the crime lab, but yeah. But you're right, I mean, you know, th- you think about what language does, you know, like we you know, toss around and people being thugs or at-risk youth or, um, and, uh, or fel- ex-felons, and we're so quick to kind of label people, and it, it, just, it, it just completely takes away their humanity, who they are. And okay. Do
2: you think that's deliberate? Do what? Do you think that's deliberate? I mean, you're a former reporter. I mean, obviously, we've.
3: Do I think it's deliberate. Um, for some, but I think it's done without any thought. You know, and, and I think there's this kind of, and given that, I guess there's a kind of deliberate quality.
2: There's, that. That's almost worse, isn't it?
3: That it's done without any thought. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I guess they're both equally bad, but it's but it's why you know language is just so important—the way we use language and how we talk about about others
1: yeah i thought i thought the most eloquent person in the book as far as solutions go was lisa daniels her her mental approach to, to, to forgiveness to, right y- yeah yeah. Hmm. yeah um her versus the story you have about mark kirk and uh bobby rush bobby rush trying to form policy right. to to uh lessen the violence. Right. In that, in was <laughs> that was a great story. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I'm not going to
3: tell the whole story, but I... I um, the opening of this. story. Yeah, I know. That's what I'm going to tell. Yeah, so so uh, Mark Kirk at one point, uh, who is a you know, senator from here, suggested we ought to arrest all the uh, 18,000 gangster disciples in the city. And, and Bobby Rush, um, this is all very public, and Bobby Rush, they knew each other, because you know, they traveled to what, D.C., back and forth, and they respected each other. And Bobby said to Kirk, you know, why don't you come spend a day with me and, uh in my district, and so Bobby ends up running a uh, small bus, and it turns out to be a party bus, and so it's a little bus. I was able to weasel my way onto this. It was me and Kirk and his aide, and Bobby Rush and his aide, and we walk in and there's a disco light going, <laughs> and there's a stripper's pole in the middle of the bus, these TVs, it was It uh, It was. Uh, it was quite a way to tour the South Side. <laughs>
1: and, and I mean, that made me think of what what you guys were saying about who's doing the labeling mark kirk the gary mccarthy they have a vested interest in the way that they they label the way these things go down you know they they did their job you know right good guys won we talk about
4: language a lot on the show uh, descriptions um and fiction and and these descriptions that we use in the real world i mean i mean you just it's it's like instant labeling
3: right know. Right. Uh, I mean, it's what you struggle with as a writer is like, you know, language is. you know, it's, it's pretty powerful. And so you've got you as a, as a writer, you're struggling with not to sort of fall into the usual tropes and, um, and trying to write with precision um, and, and honesty um, about people, especially when you're writing nonfiction. But, right. but I mean, even as a novelist, it's what you struggle with. Can
2: we, why don't we give uh, our audience members a, a chance to ask you a couple <coughs> of questions, because they do have some. Um, Quinn asked if you could talk about your reporting process, specifically how you approach a scene. Uh, and he says he's thinking about the railroad scene at the beginning if there are no children, but
3: uh, he's curious about your general approach. Right. So, you know, there are two basic ways for me that I report. So one is that I'm spending time with people and um, and hanging out th- with them and I'm a, a witness to a moment or a scene and I'm taking notes, uh, might even go back and uh, write about it um, and interview people. So there's that way and it's a pretty exhilarating but it's also, you know, you spend time with people and a lot of the time it's nothing's happening and uh, you sort of wait for those moments that feel like they somehow capture the people you're writing about and what you're writing about. And then the other way is to go back and recreate moments, um, and that's done through interviews, looking at photos, talking to people, and so, for example, that first scene in There Are No Children Here, when the boys are at the railroad tracks, I wasn't there for that, so I went back to the railroad tracks by myself, I went back there with Lafayette and Farrow, I spoke with Lafayette Faro, Farrow, their friend James, about that, I go back and look at what the weather was that day. Everything I can to try to recreate that moment with Th- this sense of immediacy as if as if I was present. Um, and um, it's what I, I mean, I teach nonfiction writing at Northwestern and it's something I tell my students all the time, it's I, I think about it as kind of reporting cinematically where you're kind of, I don't literally do this, but where you can sit across from somebody as you're interviewing them and close your eyes and imagine yourself in that place in that moment with them. Um, and it means asking questions. I mean, people, I will tell you that, you know, it means asking questions that you got no business asking that seem completely beside the point. And people, I've had people say to me, why do you, Why do you care about that? What do you, what, what's that to, you know, what does it matter to you? Um, and so I have to explain my process and why it's important um, in trying to do that. I mean, I think as readers, my, at least as a, for my, I can only speak for myself, I suppose, but, I tend not to remember ideas, but I do remember moments and scenes. And for me, it's the power of storytelling is that you move from scene to scene and with very little exposition. And uh, you know, when it's done well, you, you write in a way that years later, your readers, or if it's a movie or people who are watching it, sometimes will remember that moment and, and can't remember whether it was actually something they'd experienced themselves or something they had read in a book or seen in a movie.
2: Another, uh, let's see. Heathcliff asks, um, "I Heath- listened to the, au- Heathcliff, Heathcliff. yeah, I listened to the audiobooks for both uh, *There Are No Children* and *American Summer*. How was it decided that you would narrate *American Summer*?
3: I decided that. You decided that? <laughs> no, no. Told the publisher? I asked actually. You know, um, uh, um, I asked because the, this book is written in the first person. I, I'm present in the book. I'm not you don't really learn a whole lot about me, but, it, but um, it, there is, I am this kind of narrative thread, and so I just s- asked when they were deciding on the audio book, I said, you know, I'd be glad to, to read it, and they were game, and so it was a hellish process. <laughs> <laughs>
2: did you record it here in Chicago? I did,
3: not? we had a studio, they had a producer come in, and we spent, uh, I think, four days, uh, it's 11 hours of, uh, Everybody, reading a lot. Yeah, yeah. what well, was 11 hours of what they end up using? I did stuff over again, and uh, yeah.
2: How how many uh, takes did you? Uh, we we do a lot of voiceovers here at the station, so I'm just yeah. professionally curious. You uh, know
3: the the way, and I've done this before, so we kind of. Went through, the first, the, went, went through a first reading reasonably quickly. I mean, he would, he would stop, there were moments when he, he was really, the producer was really terrific. I mean, he, he caught things and so why don't you do that again? But then I went back and redid some of the early chapters once I kind of found my, found my rhythm. Was that a different out.
2: process to read your own book, though? I mean, you probably read it, but you know, at a bookstore well, like this, but not not for eleven hours. Right, not for eleven hours. <laughs> right.
3: But I will tell you though that as a, and I tell my students this all the time. I mean, I read my stuff aloud. Um, it's really, really important as a writer that it's it's when you sort of catch things that you wouldn't catch if you're just reading it in your head, um, and you also really begin then to sort of catch the rhythm of your writing. Um, you catch the verbal ticks that you're apt to use. Um, and so I spent one summer when, towards the end of this process, when my son was home from college, and uh, I mean, I really treasured these mornings. He would come in when he woke up, which was not too early, it was just late in the morning, But um, but he would come into my office and sit in a chair and I'd read him a chapter or part of a chapter, and it was this kind of wonderful process um because i which i would have done anyway but it was really nice to have an audience and and uh, such a supportive audience at that so
1: we were we were talking about language a little bit ago and um how it can capture or distort the narrative um and it made me think of the story you did on pete nickius the reporter
3: right. mm-hmm.
1: or the tweeter the tweeter reporter
3: um, He's a reporter. He, but he tweeted as well. But yeah, he was. Okay. So
4: this is the guy that drove from <coughs> shooting to shooting
3: and reported.
1: Right. Yeah. He ends up getting a tattoo.
3: Yeah, it's a beautiful. At the act. end of the
1: story, yeah. and he has it on his on his forearm, and it's from a Cormac McCarthy novel, All the Pretty Horses. I, I love that novel. But uh,
4: I also have a Cormac McCarthy tattoo.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
4: Blood Meridian. Mine's Blood Meridian, a little <laughs> darker. <laughs>
1: the closest bonds we will ever know are bonds of grief, the deepest community, one of sorrow. And I remember that scene. It's, uh, it's a character called Donia Alfonso. She's talking to the main character, John Grady Cole. And um, you know, that that was maybe the closest thing in the book to to a sort of spark of hope, mm-hmm. you know. Um,
3: oh, there are other places There's too. hope, yeah. yeah. But, but like
1: seeing a a community, a, a, a right. movement right. gathering together right. Right. out of everything right. that's happened. Right. You know, instead of these mm-hmm. disparate right. pockets right. of unrelated violence happening, right. do you, um, well, first of all, the way she ends that, uh, that passage, she says, uh, those whom life does not cure, death will. That's not in his tattoo. <laughs> no, <that's not. laughs> uh, but did, did you see, I mean, have you tried to bring all these characters together? Um, you know, w- have I, you seen them?
3: Yeah, well, movie? we actually yeah, we I, um, I had a celebration for the book um, uh, right before it came out um, down the south side, and so I, it was really a celebration for people in the book. And we had you know probably two thirds of the people from the book show up, and people hadn't met each other. It was really nice. Eddie spoke, um, um, and uh, and so it was a lot of fun. I got all these great photos of different people from the book with each other and um, I don't know how much they talked with each other. I'm not sure how much they had read of it at that point because I had just given it to them just the previous week. Um,
1: uh, I mean, do you think the way that we're set up now as a society, the way that we communicate makes that harder? Makes it harder? It's, it's, it seems, or the, the narrative right. goes, right. that it's much easier to sit in your own grief with things um, like right. the internet, mm. Facebook, Cell phones. You right, know, is it? Right. Do you think it's harder for people to come together now than it was, say, you know, in the '60s, the '50s, the '60s?
3: Well, that's a good question. I, you know, the answer is I don't know. Um, uh, and and I think you know, in some ways, Pete got that tattoo partly because he began to connect with all these people um, who he thought were kind of grieving the same way he was. And uh, and it is true that you. Oh. Saw that, um, in with people in the book that they sought out others who. I mean, it's like the, the it's like all these. You know, there are half a dozen groups of mothers in the city who have had their sons who were killed, and they there's a kind of richness in their mourning because of that, uh, because they have each other.
1: Is it as powerful as money? Is it, y- you know, they are asking some lofty questions, Mike. Well, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean. With, it's natural, I think, to try and think about solutions to the problem right. you know and and these m- groups, in you know, particularly these mothers, seem to be the most powerful right. in terms of emotion, eloquence, right. and attitude. but I mean, at the end of the day, a, a lot of the solution to the problem probably has to do with dollars. Right no, no question dollars. about the
3: way we write I mean it's the way we allocate resources, but again, it's one of the reasons you tell stories is you know you sort of hope that it'll sort of get those in positions of power to sort of reconsider the way we appropriate resources. And I I gotta say at the moment, like in this city, given this recent, with this mayoral election, I'm kind of hopeful at the moment.
1: Can you say who you're voting for?
3: I I, I live in Oak Park, so. All
2: right, with that, we are out. This was a great, great day here. Thanks for joining us so much at The Dial with Alex Kalowitz. Please give him a big hand. All right, we'll be back. The Chicago 100 is our next show. Next time at the Dial, it's Lyle Olson. Thanks so much for coming out. I
0: 94 is Lumping Radio's books and literature program, airing every Sunday at 11 a.m. Central. This episode featured Alec Kotlowitz, author of An American Summer, out now from Nantali's Doubleday. The episode was taped in front of a live studio audience at The Dial on March 21st, and originally aired on March 24th, 2019. I-94 is a in Radio production, with readings by Shanna Van Volt, show intro and promo voiced by David Green, music by Laurie Johnson and Bill Bennett from the KPM Archive, For more information on I-94 and for past episodes, visit EYE94.org. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit LumpenRadio.com.